This program has been approved for one AMA PRA Category 1 credit. This webcast has also been approved for ABIM Maintenance of Certification, MOC points, through the partnership between the ACCME and the ABIM. The following continuing medical education activity is the property of The Ohio State University. Duplication is prohibited by law. The Ohio State University is accredited by the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education, also known as ACCME. OSU Center for Continuing Medical Education designates this CME activity for a maximum of one AMA PRA Category 1 credit. Each physician should claim only those credits that are actually spent on this CME activity. In keeping with the essential standards of the ACCME, Planning Committee members and participating faculty have been asked to disclose any relationship with commercial entities, discussion of commercial products, services, or unapproved off-label usage of commercial products or devices. Specific disclosure information can be obtained by contacting the Center for Continuing Medical Education at ccme.osu.edu. The information presented in this CME activity is meant for educational purposes only. Physicians' own judgment must remain central in the selection of the therapy options for their patients' specific medical conditions. The following is supported in part by the Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center and Arthur G. James Cancer Hospital and Solov Research Institute. Lifestyle Medicine. That's today's presentation with the following distinguished faculty from the Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center and Arthur G. James Cancer Hospital and Solov Research Institute. And now, our medical editor and moderator, Dr. Jing Jing Mao. Diabetes, hypertension, hyperlipidemia, obesity, even polycystic ovarian syndrome. What do these and many other conditions have in common? It's the treatment. These conditions and others call for lifestyle changes as first-line therapy. As physicians, our training is often focused greatly on treatments like medications and procedures. And while we know that lifestyle can have a huge impact on health, we don't get a lot of detailed training on how to provide lifestyle advice or what specific changes to recommend to our patients in order to optimize their well-being. There is now a growing body of evidence that things like physical activity and nutrition can help a great variety of conditions, not just the ones I listed above, but also hypothyroidism, cancer-related fatigue, memory deficits, and even mental health. So today, I've invited a special guest. Dr. Kara Wada is a board-certified internist and pediatrician at Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center, who specializes in allergy and immunology, and is also board-certified in a newer discipline, lifestyle medicine. Today, Kara will take us through the tenets of lifestyle medicine, why lifestyle medicine matters, and the key habits that can help improve health. Kara, welcome to MedNet. Thank you so much for having me today, Jing Jing. I'm really excited for your talk because um, honestly, I'm a primary care doctor, but I don't know much about lifestyle medicine. And so I'm really excited to learn more about it. But before we learn more about lifestyle medicine, how do you get into lifestyle medicine? As I understand it, it's a newer discipline and board certification only became available in the past few years, in 2017 actually. So what does the training look like? How does one get into that? 
Yeah, so Lifestyle Medicine is a really accessible program. It is a approximately 30-hour continuing education online course that you can take. And then in addition to that, that's supplemented with attending one of the national lifestyle medicine related meetings. After that, through self-study, you are eligible to take their board certification exam, which is given at one of the standardized testing exam locations <laughs> like we've all gotten used to through our training. Um, and then there are continuing education MOC requirements as well. Okay. Now, do patients seek out lifestyle medicine specialists independently, or is it more of an adjunctive kind of specialty that would be a tag on to primary care or another specialty? We see lifestyle medicine take on so many different varieties across the health system. So we have one colleague who is doing lifestyle medicine consults as an inpatient hospitalist. Also, you will see the, you know, the opposite of that. So these really specialized concierge type practices that have maybe a gym and other um, nutrition support, so on and so forth, and mm -hmm. everything in between. Um, so there are lots of different ways that patients can find access to lifestyle medicine trained physicians and other healthcare professionals as well. Perfect. Thank you, Kara. Now, before we get started with today's talk, I wanted to let you know about our podcast. You can listen to all 120 of our programs via podcast by searching for MedNet21 CME on your podcast app. You can also find all of our programs and more on our website, ccme.osu.edu. If you have any questions about our programs or if you have a suggestion, please send that to us using the Ask a Question feature on our webcast player. Now let's get started. Kara? Great. Thank you so much again, and thank you for having me. I am really excited to share with you today the five must-have habits for better health, and all of these habits are based in the tenets of lifestyle medicine. But first, I like to share my disclosures, and not only our disclosures, our financial disclosures, but I really see them as a description of the lenses to which I am coming and seeing the world and sharing this information with you today. So I've spent the last 12 plus years working in academic medicine. I, as Jing Jing had mentioned, am board certified in internal medicine and pediatrics and specialized in allergy immunology. And then more recently in the winter of 21, became certified in lifestyle medicine. I also have a real passion for educating and I am fascinated by how our brains work, how we learn and behavior change and so was able to do some additional training in medical education. But really my wake up call came in the spring of 2019 when I was diagnosed with systemic Sjogren's and within two weeks of that, my nine month old daughter at the time was diagnosed with food allergy. And it really was this, you know, breaks to screeching halt that my husband, who is also a physician, and I were living life, just kind of letting things happen and really not paying attention to our habits, our nutrition. We were eating out pretty frequently. We weren't managing stress. Sleep was not a priority. And so it was through that and through some professional and personal burnout, 180 now, three years later, um, have some training in coaching, lifestyle medicine, and um, really cannot be happier in my practice and, um, and healthier too, um, from, at least from the reports of my rheumatologist. So 
Today we are going to really have three main objectives. We're going to understand that we are continuing to evolve as humans and the diseases that we experience. I'll be sharing this primarily through the lens that I have as an allergist immunologist, but you'll be able to maybe see some relationship between what I bring up and what you see in your clinical practice as well. We're going to learn the six pillars of lifestyle medicine. These are the pillars that are covered in the lifestyle medicine curriculum and um, as are a part of then that certification program. And then we're going to go through my interpretation of those, which are the five daily must-have habits for better health. I love a good alliteration and acronym. I think it is one of those things that really helps us learn, helps us remember. And so this is one other way you'll be able to remember those pillars and then apply those as you are incorporating this in your teaching with your patients or maybe even in your own health as well. We know that healthier healthcare professionals do a better job, stay in their jobs longer and, um, and serve their patients better um, when we are coming at our practice from a full cup. So I have two pictures up here on the screen and if you are listening, what you are missing is a picture of a drawing from uh, you know, a cave. So it's a description of some hunter-gatherers um, on a hunt that would be representative of our Paleolithic beginnings, you know, tens of thousands of years ago. And then on the right-hand side of the screen, you see a little selfie from probably about six months ago on a Saturday morning where I am sitting on the floor with my four-year-old daughter, Josephine. She wasn't feeling well at the time, so we were camped out in front of the TV. I am wrapped in a really warm and cozy robe. I have my coffee. We're surrounded by our couch, carpets, all of these modern creature comforts that were not even in the consciousness of our Paleolithic brothers and sisters. And so, you know, even thinking back to maybe 200 years ago when our great, great, great grandparents were living, you can really imagine the substantial changes that our everyday habits really have evolved considerably in a very rapid period of time. And so our genetics are still based in that longstanding history that we had previously, um, and we're trying to catch up. So we see this very distinctly in the field of allergy and immunology. When we get in our little imaginary time machine and we head back to the Industrial Revolution, that is when historically you will start seeing the initial reports on a greater level and at an increased prevalence of allergic rhinitis. You see it described as hay fever. It's in the British aristocracy at that time. Fast forward maybe 50 to 75 years later, seeing and hearing more about respiratory conditions and ATP asthma. And now really in my generation, seeing the onset of IgE mediated or true food allergy. So the steep increase in kiddos allergic to peanuts, eggs, milk, and that's continued. We see development and increased prevalence of things like eosinophilic esophagitis and emerging conditions that involved mast cells. So mast cell activation syndrome is one that is increasingly um, something that I'm seeing in the office as well. When we think back to the role of 
those little eosinophils, those little mast cells, when we were back in Paleolithic times, those immune system cells were responsible for protecting us from parasite infections. And thank goodness, you know, most of us aren't encountering intestinal parasites or similar infections now, but we do not have that interplay between our environment and um, those infections that we may have had uh, in years past. And so, you know, there is this substantial change in our diet, in our lifestyle, if we're living indoors versus spending a lot of time outdoors, interacting with particular infections or bacteria and the endotoxin associated with that, you can see really quickly how many different variables have changed and why we may be seeing some of these newer conditions evolve as well. The evolving human diet is one prime example of just how much that part of our lifestyle has changed over the course of about 100 years. So we're looking at data from approximately 1909 to 2009. And during that time, we have seen a striking increase in the amount of processed food in our diet. Upwards of 63% of the American diet is comprised of processed foods. Now, I don't mention this to villainize processed foods. Many times processed foods can really help um, make eating vegetables and fruits, whole grains, and other nutritious foods much easier for us. But this is a marker for many of the additives, foods, other things that maybe are less nutritionally dense, less beneficial overall for our microbiome, for our metabolism, for these different things. As we think back to those hunter-gatherer societies, they were subsiding primarily on the plants that they were able to gather, um, roots they were digging up, berries they could find, greens, whatever they could find, great variety. They would, you know, depending on where that society was, they would be getting um, animal protein from time to time or more frequently, depending. Um, but nowadays, only 6% of our calories come from these unprocessed plants, where in traditional societies, that would be much increased. Oil intake in particular has gone from around four pounds per year up to over 70 pounds per year per person. Sugar has had an even more dramatic increase from less than 10 pounds per year to over 140 pounds per person per year. I think back to the story of from the Laura Ingle Wilder um, book series, we read Little House in the Big Woods a little while ago with my daughters. And the young Laura was in the book, she's about four years old, and there's a scene where they are harvesting the maple sap from the trees in early springtime. And these children are so excited because this is the only sugar they will have primarily for the entire year. And I contrasted that to, you know, at the time it was around Halloween, we had this big bowl of candy um, that seemed to be like never ending. And it was just this really stark, you know, change, this reality, this, you know, kind of fascinating contrast between the two. I also always have to just bring up the statistic. I am a lifelong Midwesterner. I grew up about five minutes from the Wisconsin state border. and 
The estimated cheese intake for individuals in the U.S. is about 25 pounds per year, and I would have to wonder if this is, you know, if, if that average might be a little bit higher from um, from where I'm from and even my own taste preferences. When we think about these stark changes, we also then see a real evolving change in the healthcare needs of our populations. When we look at the leading causes of death in the United States, this is data back from 2000, those top three heavy hitters, not surprisingly, are heart disease, cancer, and stroke. When we look though at the actual causes of death, so what are those factors that are really playing in to those leading causes? Tobacco, poor diet and physical inactivity, and alcohol, alcohol consumption are those top actual causes of death, leading then to the increased risk of heart disease, cancer, and stroke. So really, coming back to modifiable lifestyle medicine topics that we can intervene upon. So what is lifestyle medicine? Lifestyle medicine is the discipline of studying how daily habits and practices impact both on the prevention and treatment of disease, often in conjunction with pharmaceutical or surgical therapy to provide an important adjunct to overall health. I think this is really important to focus on this concept of both and. It's not one or the other, but this is really a way to add an aspect of treatment and care to our patients. And really when patients are coming to us asking us to help them treat the root cause of their condition, these are some ways that they can really become empowered in taking ownership of their health. So let me help make the case a little stronger for lifestyle medicine. 80% of all premature deaths go back to those same elements that we were talking about that were in those top three factors or actual causes of death. So tobacco use, poor diet, lack of physical activity. And if I remember correctly, I think alcohol use was right in there afterwards. They just didn't group the poor diet and physical activity together. And I think it is so important to remember that our genes are not our destiny. Experts estimate that 10% of our health status is explained by our DNA sequences. That leaves 70 to 90% explained by epigenetics. Now, I like to hit the pause button just for a second because I think sometimes this statistic can be misconstrued to say everything should fall on us on our habits, and that's not the case. There are some things in life that we don't have control over. Our exposure to adverse childhood events. These are traumas that can occur early in childhood or even continuing on in our growth and development and even into adulthood that can increase our risk of developing chronic illnesses, chronic inflammatory diseases, and so forth. We don't have control over these situations when we are, especially when we are little kids. We don't necessarily have control over where we live, our exposure to air pollution or other environmental contamination, or the socioeconomic conditions to which we are brought into this world and kind of start off on that foot and or are able to access.
So we have the ability to be empowered, but also have to view this through the lens of equity as well. We also can go back to some of the ideas that would have come up in our medical education. So the idea of primary and secondary prevention. And we can think about different times along the development of a disease in where we might be able to intervene. So if you have a large population, you are initially thinking about assessing for risk. Who may be at risk at developing asthma, developing heart disease? hypertension, type two diabetes? What are the epidemiologic factors that may play in? Are there genetic profiles that we could think about that may play in for those increased risks as well? And where does the environment play in? When we have a little smaller pool, we're able to then think about early detection. Are there particular biomarkers that may predate the clinical onset of disease? For instance, thinking about some autoimmune conditions, you may see the development of a positive ANA antibody or other autoantibody before you see the clinical manifestations of that autoimmune condition. At any point along the way, we could think about then incorporating lifestyle modification, but really this would be a time of early intervention where if you identify those folks at risk or those who already have maybe precursors to a potential disease, you really could then have focused efforts on helping those patients make lifestyle changes along the way. And then once you have someone diagnosed, we can go back, say someone has had a heart attack or maybe has been diagnosed with breast cancer or colon cancer then we can go back and have secondary prevention efforts with lifestyle medicine as well. And that's where maybe one of my colleagues doing a hospital medicine-based consult would be able to intervene at that time. A lot of the tenants from lifestyle medicine harken back to some work done on the blue zones. So the blue zones is, uh, there's a book by the same name, but it is a research initiative that was funded by National Geographic and it looked at these five distinct geographic areas across the globe that have the most individuals that live to be older than 100 years of age. And these folks aren't just like sitting around in, in the home, you know, puttering around. These are folks that are actively, mem you know, members of their communities. They are engaged and um, they are living their best lives. So these folks are found in Loma Linda in the United States in California. Nicoya in Costa Rica, Sardinia in the island of Sardinia in Italy, Icaria in Greece, and Okinawa, Japan. And so what the researchers did, they went to each of these locations, they spoke with these individuals, they looked at the lifestyle that they were living, they took blood samples, they did a very comprehensive evaluation and analysis. There were multiple different types of uh, professionals and scientists involved. And what they determined were there were some unifying themes that went through each of these communities and cultures that even though they are from genetically very different populations, from geographically different populations, culturally, you know, all these things, they are very different and distinct. They had 
some commonalities, and those are things that we see reflected in lifestyle medicine. So the six pillars of lifestyle medicine aren't going to be anything probably terribly, you know, revolutionary or mind-blowing, but I think it adds to the science, it adds to the, you know, the, the emphasis that these um, daily habits that we engage in are really important in our overall health and wellness. So pillar number one, healthy eating. All of these different cultures had a whole food plant predominant or plant-based type diet. Now they were not necessarily vegan, although many folks in Loma Linda are, but they had primarily diets that were focused on eating plants, whole grains, vegetables, fruits, nuts, seeds, legumes. Those were the main basis of their day in and day out eating. And they would celebrate with animal protein, whether it be maybe seafood and fish in Okinawa would be more predominant, or maybe in Icaria, Greece, they were more often having lamb or other poultry. The second pillar is physical activity, ideally aiming for around 150 minutes of moderate exercise uh, in a week. The third, developing strategies to manage stress. Some of the initial studies at managing stress came kind of from where we're, you know, the area that we're sitting here today um, at Ohio State, looking at the impact of stress that was had on medical students and their immune systems. We know there are physiologic consequences to stress, to exposure to trauma. So learning how to deal with the adversity that we all experience in life is really beneficial for our health. Next is minimizing our exposure to toxic substances, in particular tobacco, but this also includes alcohol as well. And increasingly at our recent national allergy meeting, there's increased emphasis on some other substances that we are exposed to in modern life that can impact our gut health, impact our skin and respiratory health as well. So um, certain things we're seeing as a result of the forest fires that have been occurring on the West Coast, or some of the additives that are found in some of our ultra processed foods, or some of the substances that are found in our personal care products or cleaning products as well. Our fifth tenant is sleep. Sleep is critical. It is our time for our body to rest, to recover, to repair, clean out the cobwebs in our brain, um, and really making sure that we are having a enough quantity and good quality of sleep is critical in our health. We see problems, for instance, sleep apnea increases risk of heart disease, right? Or if um, I see very commonly in my patients with chronic hives, they have so much trouble sleeping because they're so itchy. And so once we're able many times to get them good sleep, we're able to get better control of their hives as well. And the last tenant is one of my favorites. It is being able to form and maintain lasting relationships. There's a recent article, and I don't recall if it was in JAMA or New England Journal, 
um, looking at the impact of the pandemic and social isolation in the health across the population. And we've all heard those stories about, you know, a long-term couple where one spouse passes away and, you know, th that's a huge blow for that other surviving partner or spouse. Um, those long-term meaningful relationships are really important in our health. And we don't always think about that when we are in some of those office visits when we're really focusing on, you know, the blood pressure or the labs or, you know, those other things that, um, that many times and rightfully show, so take precedence. So this is a tweet I had um, several months back, but you know, the take home point is only one in 10 Americans eats the recommended amount of fruits and veggies daily. So my call is to skip the latest fad diets. Don't have to worry about keto or paleo or, you know, whatever. Oh, um, instead, my call is to make sustainable and science supported the new sexy um, and to really just focus on the low hanging fruit to use upon <laughs> um, because we have a lot of room to go when it comes to those, those core tenants. So my interpretation of these five daily must have habits for immune system health, for overall health, um, have a little bit of a memory mnemonic. So they include meal management, mind time, moving your body, meaningful moments, and mandatory me time. And we're gonna spend a little bit of time on each of these, and I'm gonna incorporate some of the concepts that I've gained through coach training, through lifestyle medicine training in behavior change, because the reality is those tenants and those pillars that we just talked about, I don't think really many of those were anything new or, you know, this isn't your first time hearing those. But the reality is that making these changes, that's the hardest part. Walking our patients through making these changes, that's what takes the time and energy. Um, and, you know, one thing we haven't talked about yet is we can do this as a team. This is a great opportunity for us to learn about resources in our own communities, in our own practices, in our own practice settings where we can really harness the power of the medical team, whether that is maybe partnering with a dietitian or another a health coach or you know someone else, um, a nurse in your team, an MA in your team that maybe has interest in this. So meal management. We talked about some of the, you know, the take home points that we really want to think about increasing the amount of plants in our diet. Most of us could use a few extra fruits or veggies, maybe some whole grains. And when we think about diet too, we also need to think about it within the cultural context. You know, we have certain likes and dislikes, things that we grew up, tastes that are familiar to us and that, you know, make us feel at home and safe and comfortable. We also need to realize that for many of us, when we get hungry, our lizard brain is gonna kick in. That's that part that gets a little hangry or is like, I need a snack now. <laughs> I get really irritable. I was telling Jing Jing this morning that my 15 month old was just fit to be tied this morning. He was so grumpy, he had already had his milk. 
he had had a snack, but it turns out he was still just really hungry. And it's just a reminder that, you know, certainly as adults, we can kind of tap that down and, and moderate it a little bit. Um, but if we can think ahead, if we can use the most human part of our brain, our prefrontal cortex and plan ahead, knowing what our tastes are, knowing what our schedule looks like, knowing what you know, our budget's like, what our goals are for the week, this really can help set our stage for success when we think about reaching our nutrition goals. The other aspect I like to always think about is, you know, know what you like, but also get curious about some of those foods that, you know, are maybe on that like anti-inflammatory list. Maybe there's a new fruit or vegetable that you haven't tried and push your boundaries a little bit. Um, tapping into that concept of curiosity, that beginner's mindset of I can learn so much, I can, I can train my taste buds to, to try something new can be really fun and exciting. The other aspect that I like about this idea of meal management is your lifestyle may look drastically different from mine. I am a mom of three kids, I'm in practice, I'm running some business stuff, you know, all these things going on. And for me, what works may not work for you. So what works for me, I go grocery shopping on the weekend, I shop my, my kitchen, I look in the fridge, the pantry, what needs to be used up. I think about our week ahead, look at the calendar, and then I do meal prepping on, typically on Sunday afternoons. I make sure that for us, there's some sort of tipping point between 10 and 15 minutes. If I can't get dinner on the table in that amount of time, we may be more likely to swing through the drive-through instead of eating the more nutritious meal that I have had planned out for the week. And then we also know that on Friday, I typically have a rule called no cook Friday. And so we have a list of different takeout or restaurants or quick and easy things that we can eat that also are still relatively nutritious and ideally things my kids will eat. Now, if someone's single, they, they may find that using a meal delivery service or something else may work better for them. The other take home message that is really important, especially as we're thinking about inflammation, about, you know, everyone's talking about gut health, um, is that our microbiome really appreciates diversity, especially diversity in fiber. And so trying that's where trying some of these new foods, trying to incorporate a variety of fruits, vegetables, whole grains across the week can be really help, helpful. If you're looking for a goal, looking for a goal of about 30 food, different plant-based foods during the week um, is kind of where the cutoff is in the data. So. That sounds like a lot, 30 plants, oh my gosh, but it includes fruits, vegetables, whole grains, nuts, seeds, legumes, so beans, lentils, and all of your herbs and spices too. So if you think about going to one of those restaurants where you can kind of make your own bowl or your, you know, your own salad, what have you, a lot of times you can get over half of those in one meal. The next concept I love to share is mind time. So much of our day-to-day -day living is spent in left brain associated thinking complexes. So logical thinking, ordered thinking, 
um, checking things off the to-do list. Those are all things that are really helpful to make us successful in our day-to-day -day living um, in our modern world. But we have this whole other part of our brain, which is kind of this empathetic, expansive, thinks in parallel part of our brain as well. And we need to work out that part of our brain too. And so this can take on so many different appearances. Um, it may be meditation practice, maybe prayer practice if you're religious. It may be journaling, using some self-coaching techniques. One way that we incorporate a little snippet of this in our house is around the dinner table. We'll go around and everyone will share what they're thankful for or what made them happy for the day. Kind of have to adjust it to you know the audience. And so with a four-year-old and a seven-year-old, what made you happy for the day is kind of their version of gratitude. Um, and you're looking for ideally about 20 minutes a day in total. So I may spend about five minutes in the morning meditating. I may spend five minutes at the end of the day doing that, a few minutes at dinner time, and it can add up along the way. The other quick tip I like to share is if I'm in a particularly stressful day in clinic, or I have a patient that I know is going to be mentally challenging because maybe this patient is medically really complex, or they have a challenging social situation, or I'm gonna have to break some bad news. I'll take just 30 seconds as I'm about to put my hand on the handle of the door and I will just kind of feel that sensation of my feet on the floor, my hand on that cold metal doorknob and just take a deep breath. And it's those moments too that help flex those muscles on that right side of our brain. Moving our body. Some is better than none. Rome wasn't built in a day. Um, our goal is to work up to 150 minutes per week, and that's kind of where the data says, you know, A plus effort, this is going to get you the most um, health benefits. But any movement is, is better than just stagnation. I tend to recommend that people aim for movement that generally feels good. When we talk a little bit later about behavior change, things that feel good are going to reinforce that behavior in our brain. So if we're doing a workout that is particularly, particularly punishing, um, not only may that be hard on our joints or our bones, um, but it may not give us, it's not gonna give us that incentive through our neurochemistry and neurobiology either. The next is meaningful moments. So finding those moments throughout the day to connect with others in your life. And this can be challenging in our modern existence. How often are you maybe walking to your car at the end of the day or going through the hallways and everyone has their heads buried in a screen or we're spent all day you know, with our faces in a screen. Um, but taking those moments to linger in a hug with your partner, to stare in eyes of maybe your child or a loved one um, taking moments to put down the phone, shut the laptop closed, and give someone your undivided attention is really powerful, both for ourselves, but also for fostering those relationships that we talked are so important as well. The other way that this can come up is giving yourself a high five. So there is a book by Mel Robinson called The High Five Habit 
She spends a whole book talking about why and how giving yourself a high five can be beneficial. Um, but I challenge you, even if it feels a little awkward, a little cheesy, it is pretty impossible not to smile when you give yourself a high five in the mirror. And you can decide on how that works. I personally don't like getting smudges on the mirror. <laughs> um, so it's a little um, short, but that's a fun way just to start your day and start your relationship with yourself off on a good foot for the day too. The other and the last aspect is mandatory me time. And this is really what encompasses rest. Not only our sleep, but also all of the other forms of rest that are so important in helping refill our own cup. Self-care is self-preservation. And so many of us, even before the pandemic, were overscheduled, overstressed, not necessarily taking those moments to care for ourselves because our whole existence and our whole calling as healthcare professionals is to help others. But we can best help others when we are taking care of ourselves, when we are happy and healthy as well. And so this can take some self-exploration. For some people, you know, scheduling that spa day is great and other people, that's the last thing they want to do. So what I have done is I actually have on my calendar, like on my phone, I have sleep time scheduled. I have my journaling time scheduled. It is blocked out so I cannot schedule other, well, I'm less likely to schedule other meetings kind of during that time. One thing that, you know, after having, so I've, I've mentioned I have three children, during my most recent maternity leave, I really made an effort to shower every day. Like, it sounds so simple, but when you are fully giving yourself to another little human being, sometimes even the thought of taking that five minutes to rinse off seems like it, it, it's, it's too much or it's, it's not enough, but that's, there's so much restoration um, and rejuvenation that can happen in those moments. And as you are learning to take better care of yourself in developing a self-care practice, in developing skills of self-compassion, self-compassion is the practice of treating yourself as you would your own best friend. Scientifically, there's lots of good data that that is beneficial not only for our mental health, but our physical health as well. Um, you can check out the work of um, Kristen Neff. She does a lot of work on and research in that realm. Um, and when you learn that you are going to keep these dates with yourself, you're going to keep your word to yourself, it also changes how we view ourselves as well. And so this tends to snowball over time. So as I mentioned, this stuff isn't rocket scientist. Everyone who's listening in is a really is really smart, right? We're smart people, but it doesn't solve the problem that we have to take consistent action. And the reality is that our lizard brains I mentioned when talking about food prefer other options. They would rather just lie on that nice warm rock in the sun and have a little have a little nap. That would use less energy, and less energy would keep us alive longer evolutionarily. So let's talk a little bit about behavior change as we wrap up. Uh, these points and these 
tips are taken from Atomic Habits written by James Cleary. When we are thinking about behavior change, generally it is easier for us to build good habits and building good habits then can help replace bad habits. We'll talk about bad, breaking bad habits in a moment. When we're thinking about building good habits, choosing that apple over the donut, there are four tenants that can really help us and help take advantage of how our brains are wired to work. The first is to make it obvious. Have it attractive, have it look good. Um, think about the last time maybe you went to the produce section and were looking at vegetables you're not gonna wanna buy those withered little carrots, right? You're gonna wanna buy the bright orange, beautiful looking carrots um, if you have the choice. And if, especially if all other things are equal. You also wanna make it easy on yourself because when you get into, for instance, that hangry brain, um, when you're not thinking with your prefrontal planning cortex, but in more of a reaction mode, you need things to be easy. And you also need them to be satisfying as well. So how does this show up in our house? Well, I have taken note, you know, and this changes from time to time, but right now my girls really love eating cucumbers and peppers. So every week I try to make sure we have a little supply of some bell peppers and some cucumbers. And when I'm doing my meal prep for the week, I chop some up, they go in the little plastic containers that they can get into. And I've moved those to an area of the fridge that they can reach. So it's more obvious it's more attractive, it's easy, and it's satisfying. Similarly, we have a little treat bin um, in the bottom of our little pantry drawer, and they're able to go pick up some relatively nutritious snacks to get them through to their next meal. It also helps for me because I have access to those snacks as well. Now, when we're thinking about breaking bad habits, we kinda wanna do the opposite, right? We wanna make things invisible, make them unattractive, hard or difficult and unsatisfying. So my example is back to that big candy bowl that we had filled to the brim uh, after Halloween and probably will be refilled shortly here with the spring holidays. <laughs> um, but one thing that I did is I dumped out the excess candy. I donated it to our office <laughs> and I put the bowl up in a cupboard that is above, you know, in an area where I actually have to get out a stool to reach it effectively. We also, and the, and the cupboard doors are closed, so I can't see it. It's kind of out of sight, out of mind. It's hard because I have to get the stool, you know, there's that extra effort there. And then it's also pretty unsatisfying right now because really there's nothing in there that as looks even remotely attractive, even on my worst day when I am craving sugar like none other, I still look in there and like, oh, an apple sounds better than what's here. So um, these are some take home notes as you're thinking about, okay, the end of this presentation, you know, I would challenge you to sit down and think about one change that you want to make in your life. What would you like to see? Do you want to try adding a new vegetable at dinner time? Or do you want to challenge yourself to work out or get on your stationary bike at home? And then the next step you can do is think about what is one very small 
step, like little micro step, that you can take towards that goal. So, for instance, I want to get on my bike at home, and so what are the ways that I can make that a lot easier on myself? So one thing I realized was it was a pain if I had to go back upstairs to get my workout socks. So I started keeping my workout socks right next to the bike. I also set a goal that I want to clip into the bike five days a week. And so I then celebrate just clipping in. Genuinely celebrating after you have made that, that initial action helps set the path for making and building those new neural pathways to really encourage that habit to stick. And then you can build on that afterwards. So typically if I'm clipped in, I'm actually gonna pedal for a little bit. Even if I'm busy, I may sit on there for a couple minutes, it still is a little bit of movement that I wasn't going to get otherwise. Um, and this, you know, some of those techniques, you also, another resource I love to share with folks is Tiny Habits, um, which is another book similar to Atomic Habits, but goes through some of the science of behavior change that can be really helpful. Um, and it's really getting kind of those, that initial energy, that initial momentum going, realizing that our motivation is fickle. If you think about, you know, New Year's, you are like, oh, I am going to take on these New Year's resolutions. Nothing is getting in my way. And by like January 6th, like I'm over this, right? It like fades pretty quickly. So if you can keep things very easy and small, that helps you start and be consistent and then you can build on that consistency over time. So. All right. Well, thank you so much, Kara. That was super helpful. I mean, I've uh, definitely learned a lot of tips that I'm going to use myself. Like I'm going to schedule that exercise and um, I'm going to buy only good and plenty. So I hate all the candy that's <laughs> available in my house. And yeah, that was really helpful. Thank you so much. Um, now I'm wondering, are there certain diseases that benefit the most from lifestyle change or can it really impact any condition? Certainly most of the data, especially the data that is covered in the lifestyle medicine curriculum, really are those bread and butter conditions we're seeing in so many of our patients. High blood pressure, high cholesterol, type two diabetes, those are the main ones. Mm -hmm. But increasingly, and increased um, prevalence in sessions at our recent allergy meeting, is looking at the impact of these lifestyle changes on asthma is in particular as well. Uh -huh. Okay. And then is there evidence behind um, things that you mentioned like me time or mind time? I know, you know, there's lots of evidence behind nutrition and physical activity, but what about some of those other things that you mentioned? Yeah. So increasingly, and we have this long, relatively longstanding history of understanding the role and impact of stress and trauma on our immune system, on the development of chronic diseases. So mm -hmm. some of it comes from that. There also is some work from a researcher in Texas, Dr. Kristen Neff, who I mentioned, psychologist, and she um, really studies the role of self-compassion. So this idea of treating ourselves as our own best friend and seeing the impact of that, not only on our mental health, but also on our physical health and on our biometrics as well. So seeing uh -huh. improved blood pressure, blood sugar, 
those sorts of things. Okay. And uh, how long does it typically take to see benefit? Like once you've made some changes, how long can we let our patients know to expect um, to start seeing benefit? It depends on the magnitude of change, certainly. Um, there was a really interesting study um, that was covered in the curriculum where they had patients eating kind of the standard American diet and they had them switch to a whole food, plant-based kind of vegan diet. They saw changes in their microbiome and in some of their biometrics within a couple of days. Wow. Now, certainly mm -hmm. the patients you know, may not perceive those changes immediately, but typically in my experience in practice, you know, if folks are working on their sleep, improving nutrition, um, taking out some of those refined carbohydrates and you know, processed foods, they do seem to have pretty significant improvements in their quality of life and how they're feeling their energy levels within several weeks. That's great because if you get that, you know, positive feedback, hopefully Absolutely. that will encourage people to continue. Um, now, you know, the past few years we've been just dealing with this new disease, COVID and long yes. COVID. Do you see a role of lifestyle medicine in the treatment of long COVID? Absolutely. You know, there have been certainly epidemiologic studies looking at the risks of long COVID, the risks of severe COVID being tied to underlying metabolic conditions. And I think it only would make sense that we would then see the role for lifestyle modifications in its treatment. Mm -hmm. The study of this certainly has not been confirmed um, and will need additional research and evaluation, but I certainly see the role for nutrition, for improving sleep um, in particular in the, the fatigue people are seeing. Um, mm -hmm. And we've seen that some of these lifestyle interventions can be helpful in what seem to be related conditions like chronic fatigue syndrome. Mm -hmm. Now, if our patients are interested in seeing a lifestyle medicine expert, where can we direct them? Is there a registry to help identify someone in their area? I send folks to the lifestyle medicine website. So the American College of Lifestyle Medicine's website is lifestylemedicine.org. Great resources there. You also can look for the credentials um, that someone is a diplomat of the American Board of Lifestyle Medicine, ABLM. After mm -hmm. their name, those would be some letters to look for as well. Okay, now can anyone go into lifestyle medicine or is it um, more for certain specialists? So anyone is eligible and they actually have specific programs as well for folks that aren't physicians. So pharmacists, um, dietitians, nurses, nurse practitioners, um, also can become certified in lifestyle medicine. That program looks a little different, um, but is very similar in the topics and the pillars that it's covering as well. Okay, that's really helpful to know that there's other, um, other professionals that mm -hmm. um, can be experts at lifestyle medicine. Are there any, like you mentioned a few, like dietitian, um, nurses, yeah. are there um, some other ones that we should know about that are good um, collaborators or advocates for lifestyle medicine? Yeah, so lifestyle medicine as a field really emphasizes the role of the healthcare team because there is a lot of science to support the role of team-based care. Mm -hmm. And so it is common for, especially in primary care clinics or lifestyle medicine-based primary care clinics, that you will see a dietitian, a health coach, um, maybe a... Um, the physician, a physical therapist, you may see that variety of folks on the team so that 
each one can really speak and come from their, you know, their genius zone and where uh -huh. they shine. Mm -hmm. Perfect. That's really helpful. Thank you so much, Kara, for coming and discussing lifestyle medicine and also giving us all those great tips to help improve our patients' lives and hopefully our own lives. We're going to finish up today's program with a final key point. Kara? I want everyone to remember that we are not beholden to our genetics, that we can step into our own and become empowered in our daily habits. So I would encourage you to pick one thing and to just start taking action. Thank you for joining us today. For our audience, you can receive CME credit for watching by logging onto our website, ccme.osu.edu and taking the post-test. Join us again next week when my guest, Dr. Lakshmi Mehta, is here to discuss burnout. That's all for today. Thank you for tuning in and farewell until next time.